0: good morning how we doing everyone Great. cool you got a bible with you you should know where we're turning at this point Ephesians chapter 4 we'll finish off that chapter this morning Ephesians chapter 4 uh, and we will wrap up our time together hey as we begin our message let me say two things to you two things I want to do this morning the first and the foremost thing I want to do uh, is just to take a moment to say thank you to you uh, and here's why Um, You don't know me at all. We've not really known each other. We've met throughout the weekend, some of us, but you don't really know me. And yet, um, I have stood here on this stage and said some things that I'm fully aware are difficult for some of you to hear. Uh, Like I've stood here and I've said some things out of the scripture that are just hard to receive and hard to hear and maybe difficult to process for you. Uh, And yet, my thank you to you is that you have had the willingness to receive that and wrestle with that. Uh, And as I talk to some of your youth pastors and counselors, that instead of just kind of rejecting something because it's hard to hear, you've actually received it and wrestled with it. Uh, And that is a beautiful and a good thing that I admire and want to affirm in you. And here's my hope. My hope is that for the rest of your life, wherever you go, that you will always make sure to surround yourself with people who are willing and able to tell you what you need to hear, not just what you want to hear. I hope you will have friends and pastors and small group leaders and people in your life who are willing and able to tell you what you need to hear, not just what you want to hear. So that's the first thing, my thank you. The the second thing I wanna do, and that's what's gonna take up the bulk of our time this morning, um, is to prepare your heart for what comes next. But Because what you're aware of so clearly this morning, what you're aware of is that in about an hour here, for some of you a little longer, um, you'll be getting into buses and cars and trucks and vans and making your way down the hill. And by the time you go to bed tonight, unless something goes catastrophically wrong, um, you will be in your own bed tonight and you'll get back into the normal rhythm of life and school and sports and family and everything else. And here's what I want to do this morning with the time we have remaining. I want to prepare your hearts for what comes next. I want you to be clear-eyed about what comes next and to be ready for what that means. Because here's what I'm aware of. Some of you this weekend made decisions about following Jesus. For, For some of you, it was your first time ever to make a decision that you are a follower of Jesus. He is the Lord, the King, the Kurios of your life, and you're all in with him. For others of you, you have been drifting into oblivion, and this weekend woke you up, and you are back on track with Jesus. And for anyone who's made a significant or important decision about Jesus, I need you to know that as you go down the hill, you are about to be tested in that. It was eight years ago. I was here at summer camp. I had an entire week with a group of students here. And there was this young lady who comes up to camp. She had never come with us before to anything. I never met her before camp. Uh, Yet her friend invites her to come, and so she shows up, and she's here at camp. And she comes out of this gnarly home where things were just brutal uh, and abusive and terrible. And that led her to a number of decisions throughout the course of her life, mostly involving alcohol and boys, that just ruined her. Uh, And so she came up to camp, and her life was just in shambles. Everything seemed wrong. And she was so desperate for something new that when she heard the good news of Jesus, her heart leaped toward it and said, there is a God who loves her. Who sees her as holy and chosen and dearly loved, and I watched this young lady come in on Sunday at camp, and just throughout the course of the week, I've just never seen someone so clearly transformed by the gospel. It's Saturday morning again. This is a summer camp, and we get into the buses and the cars, and for us, it's buses, and uh, we're heading down the hill. And now here's what you all know, Um, you're going to head down the hill today, and that little device in your pocket that's pretty useless right now will become useful about an hour down the hill. And so it's actually the most sad thing for your youth pastors, for me, for everyone, because everyone's talking, we're having a good time, we're talking about camp, and then suddenly, it's like in a moment, everyone's like... Right, that's what's going to happen today. It's like, oh, we're having the best time, we're family, we love you. But this is what happens, so we're going down the hill, and suddenly we get to phase right and, and that's where everyone is and then I see her at lunch we stopped for lunch about halfway through and she's sobbing she's sobbing and I was like what is going on and, and she says okay, I got down into cell reception and the first text message I got was from the guy who I was with two weeks ago and he said I heard you're back from Jesus camp today you want to kick it at my house tonight And every one of you in this room knows what kick it at his house tonight means. Every single one of you knows what she is being drawn back into with that singular text message. And it just occurred to me in that moment that she hadn't even made it down the mountain yet. She hadn't even gotten home yet. And temptation was already in her cell phone. And I want you to know the same thing is true for you. Like, I don't know what you're going home to. I don't know what your patterns are. I don't know who the people are. I don't even know if it's your family that might be the destructive force in your life that's pulling you away from Jesus. I just know that for every single one of you who made a decision about Jesus, there are three things coming your way right now. There are three things coming at you like a freight train. And if you're taking notes, I want you to write these three things down. Here's what's coming at you in a couple hours. Number one, distraction. Distraction. There are a million things that are gonna pull at your attention when you get home. And some of those are good, right, and healthy things like sports and school and family, good things. But they're gonna distract and pull away from your focus on Jesus. The next is temptation. Like whatever temptation you haven't had to deal with while you're up here, whatever temptation you think you're free from because you've been here all weekend will hit you by the time you go to bed tonight. Distraction, temptation. And then the third thing is opposition. It's opposition. Like, I need you to know if you made some decisions about following Jesus, I promise you, there are going to be some people who don't like that. There are going to be some people on your team. There are going to be some people at your school. There might even be some people in your family who don't like the decision you've made. Distraction, temptation, opposition are coming at you like a freight train. And this morning, I have a simple job that is to prepare you for those three things. Because I need you to know there's no avoiding those three things. I wish I was sending you down the hill. And I'm like, here's the simple strategy to make sure you're never tempted, never distracted, and never opposed. But that doesn't exist. That is a fantasy world that does not exist. The world that exists is filled with those three things. And this morning, I want to try to prepare your hearts for what comes next. So again, if you have your Bible, Ephesians chapter 4. We'll start in verse 22. We covered this last night, but I want you to see it afresh. It says in verse 22, you, like you, follower of Jesus... We're taught with regard to the former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So it's like in other words, you were taught that if you're going to follow after Jesus, there's actually some things that are going to have to change in your life. Remember how we talked about repentance? Repentance isn't just feeling remorse or feeling bad about things. It's not just feeling icky inside. It's actually making changes, deciding to do things differently. You're putting off your old self, and you're putting on your new self. And what's the purpose of all of this? It's in the back half of verse 24. It says that you were created like this new creation that God is doing, like these videos we're watching where God is shaping and molding us and creating us. He's creating us to be like God. He's creating us to be like God, that we would be made into the image and likeness of the Son. And what does it look like to be made like God? It's right here, that we would have true righteousness and holiness, that we would have true righteousness and holiness. And here's what I want you to know. If you want to follow after Jesus, holiness becomes your mission. It becomes your mission when I say holiness, it is you becoming more and more and more like Jesus. Like the point of your life, the moment you come to faith in Jesus Christ, is that you would be conformed and made more into the image of the Son. In other words, that every day of your life, from here until you die, you would become a little more like Jesus. That is what it means to seek after holiness. And here's what I need you to know. Holiness sounds like one of those old-fashioned, boring church words that we don't want anything to do with. But let me just tell you this as clearly as I can. If holiness is not your mission, then Jesus is not your master. If holiness is not your mission, then Jesus is not your master. If you're saying, I'm going to follow Jesus, I just have no interest in being like him, then you're not actually following after Jesus. Holiness is the mission. You are called into true righteousness and holiness. That's what God's trying to do with your life as you go home. The point isn't that you just feel good about God and feel good about your life. It's that you pursue holiness. But then here's the big misnomer about holiness. I talk about holiness all the time, and people think that means like a boring, kind of lousy life. Like they think holiness means like your life is kind of not so great, and it's not so wonderful, but maybe heaven will be nice. But those people who say that are totally wrong. Holiness is the best possible thing and you know what my evidence of that is you know how you feel right now this kind of like feeling inside of you that you can't quite locate and you're trying to put your finger on it but you feel free and you feel good and you feel right and you feel like this is how i'm supposed to be living like this weekend you've experienced something inside of your heart and it feels totally right that's the result of you walking in holiness that's what holiness produces in us it produces what the scriptures call joy of the lord it produces it within inside of us and so when I call you to holiness, it's not calling you to a life that is boring and out of touch and sad and remorseful about everything. It is calling you to a life that is filled with joy. The feeling you have right now is not something that has to be unique to camp. Well, like growing up, um, I called myself a bit of like, a, like a recovering camp addict. So here's what I would do. I would come to winter camp in January, and I would be like on fire for Jesus. And then that would fade after like two, three weeks, sometimes four or five weeks, but usually about two or three. And then it would kind of fade. And then there would be like a mission trip in the spring, so i kind of get like a little bump there. And then summer camp gave me like a six-week bump. Like after summer camp, man, I had it going for a while. But by the time mid-October hit, certainly by November, I was donezo, okay? And then winter camp was kind of on the horizon, so that's kind of how I did my Christian walk. Just like this, constantly, all throughout high school. Maybe you know what that's like. See, what I would do is I would get to Camp High and I would try to ride the Camp High as long as I could and then it would collapse. But but then it was later on in my life that I realized there's actually no such thing as Camp High. There's nothing here at Hume that's special. Like, it's a special place. It's a beauty. This chapel is amazing. God is so good to this place. I love the scenery. I love everything here. And yet, here's what you need to know. There is not actually more of the presence of God here than there is in your bedroom, than there is at your school, than there is at your home, See, so here's what I realized, and here's what I want you to realize, write this down. You do not have a camp high. You have an obedience high. You do not have a camp high right now. You have an obedience high. This is what obedience, this is what holiness produces in you. This kind of high, this kind of joy. It's so funny, people talk about the camp high. They're like, it's such a mystery. I don't know what happened. I went to camp. I got rid of all the sins in my life. I got rid of all the temptation and the distraction. I got around other believers. I worshiped. I prayed. I read the Bible. I confessed my sin. I walked in holiness, and I'm shocked. I feel great. It's like, of course that's how you're supposed to feel. Of course that's what you're supposed to experience. And so here's my encouragement to you as you go home. Keep walking in obedience. What have you done this weekend? You've been around other believers. What should you do as you go home? Keep being around other believers. What have you done this weekend? You've prayed. What should you do when you go home? You should pray. You've worshipped. Go worship. You've studied the word. Go study the word. Keep doing these things. Because nothing you've done at camp, outside of maybe sleeping in like a, a room with like eight other people, is actually something you can't do back home. You can have meals with other Christians, you can worship with other Christians, you can confess, you can repent. All of this is a result of holiness. All of this is a result of obedience. This is what we're called to, true righteousness and holiness. And then in verse 25, Paul says these words. He says, therefore. Now anytime in the Bible you see the word therefore, it's meaning because of the argument that has just been presented. Here's now how you're supposed to live. So I want you to hear these words in the back half of the chapter on how you should live. It says, therefore, each one of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. For we are all members of one, of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. So you want to know the really practical commands that God gives to you? He says this to you. Put off falsehood. You know what the Bible's saying? Stop lying. Stop fudging the truth. Stop playing around and putting up this smoke screen and deceiving people. Stop doing that with one another. Stop lying to your small group leader. Stop lying to your pastor. Can I just say this over you this morning? Stop lying to your parents. Stop doing this thing where you're deceiving and constantly putting up a screen and trying to manipulate and control your parents. Stop doing that. If you're gonna follow after Jesus, you just gotta be a person who speaks the truth even if it's hard for people to hear and even if it's embarrassing for you. Stop lying. And number two, it says... Be aware of your anger. Like, anger is this natural thing that stirs up in us, and the Bible never says don't ever be angry, but it is going to tell you to deal with your anger. And for some of you, what's happened in your life is you're mad at someone, maybe even someone in this room. You're mad at someone else in your youth group, someone else in your church. You're angry at them, and you've just let that fester for years. And can I encourage you, before you leave camp today, to just leave that anger up here and go home without it? That, that, that's what Paul is saying here. Don't let the sun go down while you're angry. Like, don't let that happen. Because here's what Paul understands. The words you speak, the lies you tell, the ways you fudge the truth, the ways you're angry and dramatic and bitter and frustrated with other people in your youth group, in your family, at your church, at your school, all of that is a spiritual issue. See, when I say you got to deal with your anger, you probably shouldn't lie to people. In fact, that's going to damage you. When I say that, that kind of sounds like a non-spiritual issue. And then when I say you should pray and worship and study the Bible, that sounds like a spiritual issue. And so what most of us have done, we've divided our life into non-spiritual things and spiritual things. But I want you to know the Bible doesn't have those buckets. The Bible only has one bucket. Everything is spiritual. Everything about your life matters when it comes to following Jesus when you lie, it's damaging your relationship and your fellowship with, the, with Jesus. When you don't deal with your anger and just let it fester and fill up with resentment and bitterness, it affects your relationship with Jesus. And then here's a fascinating thing Paul says. You almost miss it if you don't look closely, but look back at the text here in verse 27. It says, anger, speaking truthfully. But then do you notice these words in 27? It says, don't give the devil a foothold. That's kind of like a random thing to throw in there. He's like, by the way, stop lying to one another, deal with your anger, because if you don't, the devil's gonna get a foothold in your life. It's like a climbing term, if you've ever like done rock climbing or even conceive of that. like You have a foothold, and that allows you to get a little higher, and when you don't deal with your anger, when you're just a lying person who's constantly manipulating everyone, when you do that, you allow the devil a foothold in your life. And you know what's wild to me? Most of us, most of the time, live as if the devil doesn't even exist. In fact, you may even think it's crazy that I'm talking about the devil. You may think it's crazy to believe in a literal Satan, an actual devil, an actual enemy of your soul. But you know what I think is crazy? I think it is crazy to look around the world, see what happens on the news, see what happens in your own heart, see all of the wickedness in the world. You know what I think is crazy? I think it's crazy to not think there's an animating force behind that. See, there is an enemy of your soul. And it's not a little red guy with a pitchfork who's trying to play pranks on you. The devil is real. The devil hates you. The devil hates everything that's happened in this chapel this weekend. The devil hates the decisions you've made. The devil hates the confession and repentance that's been present in your life this weekend. The devil hates you. He wants to destroy you. And yet some of you will get destroyed by him. You will get totally blown off track because you don't actually live like he exists. Because here's the truth about a war. You will lose every war you don't know you're in. And I need you to know that there's spiritual warfare going on in your life. Like Paul looks at your lies and the way you don't deal with your anger and says the issue isn't just the social consequences there. The issue is the spiritual consequences. Because there is a devil and he hates you and he's coming after you. Let me give you the four battles that are going to happen with the devil. Write these down. The four struggles, the four battles that are going to happen as you go home. The first one is this. It is the battle for your mind. It is deception. Deception is the battle for your mind. You know what the devil wants to do? The devil wants to lie to you. Most of the horrible things we do when it comes to sin, remember, starts with us not thinking right. So you know what the devil wants to say to you when you get home? Go ahead and look at porn. It'll be the last time you ever do it. You know what the devil wants to say to you when you go home today? The devil wants to say to you, you should just go ahead and treat your parents the same way you did before because they don't treat you right, and so you should treat them bad too. He's going to lie to you. The devil's going to say something to you like, this little momentum you have with your faith, it's not going to last. You might as well give up. It is a battle for your mind. It is the weapon of deception. And the truth is, the enemy is going to come after you. And you know how we fight the battle of deception? You know how we wage war against the deception on our mind? We fight the lies of the enemy by filling our mind with the truth of the word of God. We fill our mind with the truth of the word of God. And you cannot win a war of deception in your mind if the only time your Bible cracks open is on Sunday or Wednesday night at youth group. You have to become someone who knows and loves the word. The first battle is deception. It is for your mind. It is the lies the enemy is going to tell. Here's the second battle. The second battle is for your heart. The second is the battle for your heart. It's discouragement. discouragement. There is going to be something, can I just promise you this? I'm not a prophet, I can't just promise, I don't know exactly what's gonna happen, I just know in the next few days, something's going to happen that just takes the wind out of your sails. Something's gonna happen where there's drama in the youth group, where you stumble in your sin, where something goes on and Satan's gonna go, see, you didn't belong to that church in the first place. They didn't really love you. See, you can't really overcome that sin. See, you can't really read your Bible. Satan will try to discourage your heart in the next couple of days. And that is going to come at you so quickly, like so rapidly, there will be this discouragement that sets in. And how do we wage war against discouragement, the battle for our heart? We surround ourselves with other people who can build us up when we're discouraged. Like discouragement only works well in isolation. And the great tragedy is that some of you will leave camp and church and youth group and small group and all the great things will be happening and you'll back out of those things for some reason or another. See, the first war, the battle is the battle for our mind. It is deception. The second is for our heart. It is discouragement. The third is for our strength, for our flesh. It's temptation. The third battle is temptation. It's the battle for our strength. It is him coming after our strength. It is him tempting us with that thing we said we'd never do again. It's like you get home and you get alone in your room tonight and you have your computer or your TV or your cell phone and those sites are calling after you. Those websites or those videos are calling after you. It's the person who's hooked on a substance and you know when you get home you have a stash and you could so easily destroy it but you could so easily be sucked back in. It's the person who's gonna be sucked back into friend groups you have no business being with. It's the people who your parents are gonna ask a question and your gut is to lie about it to them. That's the temptation that's coming at you how do we fight back against that temptation? How do we win the war of temptation? It's going back to what we just said. It's obedience. It's holiness. It's knowing that God is going to hold out this reward for us as we walk in obedience toward him. That's how we remember that. So there's four battles. The first is deception. It's the battle for our mind. The second is discouragement. It's the battle for our heart. The third is temptation. It's the battle for our strength. And here's the final battle you will face in the coming days. That is accusation and that is the battle for your soul. The battle for your soul is accusation, and here is the accusation you will hear. Like, you could almost write this down because in the next week, you are going to hear this whispered into your ear and whispered into your heart. The accusation that is going to come against you is, who do you think you are to have a relationship with God, you filthy, wretched sinner? Someone like you, God would never love, He would never care about with your past and your history and what you did, even with what you did at camp, with what you did last week, with what you did last fall. God would never love you. You are disgusting. You are filthy. God wants nothing to do with you. That is an accusation against your soul. And here's how we respond to that accusation. When we sense Satan is whispering that in our ear, we go, Satan, I know I'm a great sinner. In fact, I'm convinced I'm one of the greatest sinners. And yet, as a great sinner, I can walk with confidence because I have a great Savior. His name is Jesus. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead. And I am quite confident that he is able to rescue a sinner like me. That's how we stand in confidence against the accusation of the enemy. So again, Paul is going to say that there's this devil who wants to get a foothold in your life. And as you go down the hill, I want you to be aware of deception, that battle for your mind that's coming. Uh, Of temptation, that battle for your strength. Of discouragement, the battle for your heart. An accusation, the battle for your soul. It goes on this way in verse 28. It says, anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must do work doing something useful with their hands so that they can have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it might benefit those who listen. So, so I want you to notice the structure of these two verses in verse 28 and 29, because it's really important that you understand what Paul's trying to do here. He's going to say, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. Like in other words, stop swearing. Stop using such vulgar language. Stop using the language you hear in popular songs at the top of the list on Spotify. That has no business coming out of your mouth. Racist or sexist jokes, anything that's inappropriate or treats people like less than human, that has no business coming out of your mouth. And then it says, don't steal. Don't steal from a store, don't steal from your parents, don't steal things online. Digital theft is still theft, right? Don't do that. This is what Paul is saying, and yet here's what's so critical. Paul does not simply say, don't say bad things, don't let unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. He doesn't simply say, don't steal. That's what most religions do. Most religions say, don't do bad things. But that's not where Paul leaves it. In fact, if you look back at the verse, it will say, don't let unwholesome talk out of your mouth, but. And then it'll say, don't steal, like don't steal anymore, but. And then what's the key? Instead, say things that are going to build one another up. Instead, do something useful with your hands so that you'll have something to share with those in need. See, most religions and most moral people think the answer is, just don't sin. But according to the Bible, the point of you following Jesus is not that you would just avoid sin, The point of you going home is not that you would just avoid sin. The point is that you would avoid sin so that you can take that energy and funnel it into the most important part of the Christian life, and that is love. Love for one another and love for God. Again, the moralist, the old-fashioned religion would just say, the point is that you don't sin. And what the Bible is actually going to teach is the point is you don't sin. So instead, you can channel that energy into building one another up, into serving the world. So here's what I want you to know. If something's got its hooks in you and you feel nervous about the sin in your life, like how am I going to overcome this? How am I ever going to get past this thing? How am I ever going to be free from what's going on in my life? You will never overcome that until you find something worth channeling that energy into. Like, I just know for so many of you, it just feels like you've got these urges bubbling up inside of you. And it feels like that just gets channeled into sin over and over and over again. But watch what happens in your life when you find something good and righteous and holy and loving and true to channel that into. Like, watch what happens when you begin to invest in the younger kids at your church. Watch what happens when you begin to share the gospel with people on campus. Watch what happens when you begin to care for people and serve people and love people and invest your life into something outside of you. It's not that those urges go away. It's that we channel into something that's meaningful and good and right and true. Again, the Bible is not just saying don't sin. It's saying don't sin because you can take that energy inside of you and do it towards something that actually helps you love others. This is the great secret. The great secret to you overcoming your sin is not you constantly thinking about your sin. It's you thinking about other people and how God might use you to serve, love, and build up others. So, See, that's why, and you won't have to turn here, but that's why in Galatians chapter 5, 16, this is one of the most significant verses when it comes to overcoming sin and transformation in our life. In Galatians chapter 5 and verse 16, it says this, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not desire the the desires of the flesh. Like in other words, are these desires of your flesh, these things you seem to do, these things you can't seem to overcome? How do you overcome it? Well, it's not by doing the gospel of sin management, where you just try harder to not do the thing. It's that you walk by the Spirit of God. You follow after Jesus. You fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The scriptures command us to consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men that we might not grow weary and lose heart. How do you overcome sin? It's not by focusing on your sin. It's by focusing on Jesus and how you might serve others and build them up. You walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And what does that mean to walk by the Spirit? I think you will perfectly understand what it means to walk by the Spirit of God if you are someone who knows, loves, loves, treasures and internalizes the Word of God. All right, let me say that again. You will know what it means to walk by the Spirit of God if you know and love the Word of God. And so when you go home, one of the most decisive things you can do to move forward with Jesus is to be someone who knows and loves and studies and talks about and memorizes and builds your life around the Bible one of the most significant things you can do in the next few hours is to make a decision as you're sitting on the bus, or in the van, or in the truck, or anywhere you are, you're going down the hill, that you are going to be a Bible reader. That it's no longer this thing that's kinda out there, maybe someday, I don't really know, it doesn't make sense to me, you're going to become a Bible reader. You wanna cultivate that as a lifestyle. Can I encourage you to move past the phrase, I need to read the Bible, and simply say about yourself, I am a Bible reader. To just weave that into your life like you've woven so many other things into your life? Like, Lord willing, for most of you, you don't have to wake up every morning and really wonder, am I gonna brush my teeth today? I don't know, man, like... Like, hopefully you're not wrestling with that every day. If you are, your dentist probably isn't happy. But, like, hopefully that's just, like, a part of your life. You've woven it in. Like, that's just what I do. You don't even think about it. You're not like, mmm, I don't know. What, what day of my streak am I on, the, on my toothbrushing streak? Like, you don't even think about that. And if for some reason there was a day where you forgot to brush your teeth, you wake up the next morning, you kind of have, like, the sweaters on your teeth. You wouldn't feel so good. Like You'd be like, oh, it's was a little gross. But you wouldn't be like, oh, my streak is broken. I will never brush my teeth again. Like, no, you just pick up your toothbrush and do it the next day. That's what you do with Bible reading. You don't make it about how perfect or how good your streak is. You just say, I'm gonna read the Bible. And then if you miss one day, here's a principle to write down and to live your entire life by. I never miss two days in a row. I never miss two days in a row. So if I go to bed and wake up the next morning and realize I didn't read the Bible, I'm just gonna wake up and read it the next day. You build it into your life. You cultivate a lifestyle. And listen, the way you do that is for you to have a Bible reading plan. Like, listen, I have done throughout my life the lucky flip. You ever done the lucky flip? Where you just kind of open the Bible, you're like, ha-ha, Jeremiah 17, 9. You're like, ah, okay, thanks, God. And then you move along. And listen, sometimes God honors the lucky flip, okay? Like, I'm into that. But here's what you need. You need a plan. And most people fail to read their Bibles because they fail to plan. They fail to actually make a plan. It'd be like this. Um, who, who here... Um, trains athletically in any way, whether it's running, lifting weights, swimming, anything like that, you have like, like you seriously train, okay, most of you do. Here's what you know. If I'm like wanting to get stronger, and I go into the gym, and one day I do like bench press, and then some curls, and then a shoulder press, and some squats, but then I come in the next day, maybe like two days later, and I'm like, I think I'll run run on the treadmill, maybe do some elliptical, Maybe do some, some basketball, and then the next day I come in, and I just kind of walk around and sit in the sauna, and I'm just kind of making it up as I go. Am I going to get stronger? Of course not. The only way you get stronger, the only way you get faster, the only way you get better is by having a plan and working that plan. And so what do you want to do on your car ride home today? As you get home tonight, you want to come up with a plan. And here's the coolest thing in the world. If 100 years ago I had said, come up with a plan, you would have to think up of one on your own. But you know what the most wild thing in the world is? People are like, what plan should I use? Do you know that if you go to the Google machine and just type in Bible reading plans, there will be like 200 billion Bible reading plans, PDFs you can download, there's apps you can download, there's a million different ways to do it. People always ask me, what's the best Bible reading plan? And the answer is clear, whichever one you'll actually do. And so if you try to do the Bible in a year, but it's so overwhelming that you just give up, that's not the best Bible reading plan for you. Maybe for some of you, the best Bible reading plan is I will read one verse per day for one year. I dare you to do that. See what happens in your life when you move the Bible from this periphery thing right to the center of your life. Because to walk by the Spirit of God is to know the Word of God. And when I know the Word of God deeply, I will be aware of and attuned to the Spirit's action in my life. I want to plead with you that maybe one of the most important things you will do when you go home is to move the Bible to the center of your life and become not someone who says, I need to read the Bible, but someone who says about themselves with integrity, I am a Bible reader. It goes on in verse 30 and says these words. It says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Like I actually think this is important for us to linger on. Do you know that it's actually possible to make God sad? It's possible to make the Holy Spirit of God Sad? It says, do not grieve. Do do not make sad the Holy Spirit of God. Do do you know what God does? Like, he looks upon you, and he's not filled with rage and contempt and anger and judgment. That's already been put on Jesus on the cross. But there are times that the God of the universe looks at you, and he is heartbroken because of the decisions you're making. Like, it's the same with my kids, right? Like, I don't look at them, and I'm just like, I hate you. I'm filled with contempt for you. I I look at my kids occasionally and just see the decisions they make, and I just go, I'm sad for you because I want better for you. And that's what I need you to know. Like whatever you're going home to, God wants better for you than what your past was, what you've done, where you've been. God wants better and better and better for you. And when you don't choose that better, it grieves the spirit of God. And then in verse 31, the last verse we'll look at this morning says this. It says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. want to have some marching orders for going home? Some things you can do that will change your life and change your walk with Jesus? Put these things into action. Not with some random people out there, not with theoretical Christians, but with the actual people who you're getting into cars and buses and trucks and vans with today. Those people. Can I say this again? Get rid of all bitterness. Some of you are bitter at someone else in this room. You're just bitter, you're angry, Maybe there was a falling out, a friendship issue. Maybe you dated at one point, but you're not dating anymore, and there's just some bitterness. What Scripture says is get rid of that. Get rid of the rage and the anger. Someone hurt your feelings, and you know why they hurt your feelings? Because they're a human, and you're a human too, and that's normal, and we're going to move through that in life. And it's not to say we don't deal with it, and it's not to say we get run over. It's just to say we want to deal with the rage and anger. We get rid of brawling and slander. Like we get done with the drama and the fighting and the slander where I say something about her because she said something about me and all of that happens. We just eliminate that from our lives along with every form of malice, which means we're just not doing things to intentionally hurt one another. But on the flip side in verse 32, it says be kind and compassionate to one another. Like another, be kind to each other. Like actually be nice, be kind, be compassionate to one another. You know the person in your church group that drives you insane? They probably have a hard story. They probably have a hard life. You know what compassion is? Compassion is looking at the person who bugs you the most and going, you know what? I probably bug other people in that way, so I'm going to be compassionate with them. I'm going to be kind to them. And that's just forgiving one another. Just as in Christ God forgave you. Do you know that forgiveness is the only way to heal the wounds of a past we cannot change? That forgiveness is the only way to heal the wounds of a past we cannot change? And so forgiveness is this tool we use of she wounded me, he hurt me, this person said that, she did that, and the only way to move past that is forgiveness. And forgiveness is hard, but the only thing harder than forgiveness is you choosing to live in bitterness and anger and bondage to that sin for the rest of your life. Forgiveness is how we move forward. And yet here's the beautiful thing about this passage I just read. Everything I just read to you Forgiving one another, being compassionate to one another, letting go of malice and anger and all of these things going on. The only way that happens is if we do it in the context of these words. You'll see this here in verse 32. If we do it in the context of one another. If we do it in the context of forgiving each other. Each other. So here's what I want you to know. But most high school students think their relationship with God is all about me and God. It's all about the vertical relationship. So it's all about prayer and scripture reading and worship and that kind of thing. And that's a beautiful and critical part of your relationship with God. But I want you to know that if you are filled with hate and bitterness and malice and anger and unforgiveness toward one another, the other people in your church, it will hinder your growth in Jesus. You will not grow in your faith if you are filled with rage and anger and bitterness and contempt for one another. You must be filled with kindness, compassion, and forgiveness, just as Christ forgave you. And in order to do that, we need to recognize that we are called together as one people, and that people, that each other we see in the Bible has a name. Do you know what the name of that each other is? The name is the church. It's the church. And really, that's where I want to end this morning, with the church. The church. And when I say the church, I don't mean the global church. Somewhere out there, that's true. You're part of a body of Christ that extends through every generation and in every nation. But here's what else I know. You are part of a local church, a local body of Christ that has a specific name that you came up to camp with. And here's what I want you to know. That the local church is the soil in which healthy Christians grow. The local church is the soil in which healthy Christians grow, and if you tell me I love Jesus, but I don't love the church, I'm going to push back on you and say you don't actually love Jesus, because if someone told me, hey, Brian, I love you, and I think you're the best, but I think your wife is the worst, I don't really care for her, and if you ever show up to dinner with her, I'm out of there, I don't want to see her anymore, you would never be tight with me because I love my wife and she is my bride. And here's what the scriptures say about the church. The church is the bride of Christ. And so if you say I love Jesus, I just hate the church, then what you're saying is I don't actually love Jesus. You wanna grow in him? You wanna grow to be more like Jesus? You wanna grow in holiness? You wanna grow into the image and likeness of the son? Do you wanna be transformed by the renewing of your mind? It happens in the soil of the local church. So see, here's how I tend to think about the local church. Um, I tend to think about the local church in the similar way that I think about this device right here. Um, now, throughout the course of the weekend, you've had this device and um, it's been functionally useless, except for as a nice little camera, maybe something to take notes on, maybe you have like a little game you play with it, maybe you try to airdrop each other things because that's what you kids do these days, right? Like, that's what we do, right? But, but here's the truth. In order for your phone to work, it really needs two things. The first that your phone needs is power. Now, show of hands, we're doing church this morning, so let's be honest. Has anyone totally lost power on their phone this weekend? You forgot to bring a charger, your phone is dead. Okay, a handful of you. Okay, I appreciate the honesty. Aren't we so dramatic with our phones? We don't say it's lost battery, we're like, it's it's dead. (laughs) Rest of the it's dead, it's dead. Right, it's dead. But here's the deal. You lose power on this thing, it is nothing more than an extraordinarily expensive paperweight, right? It is useless, right? It is a doorstop, it is a paperweight. This is worth nothing if you don't have power. It cannot function at all without power. But but then, here's what you've learned this weekend. The other thing this needs in order to be useful, in order to flourish in the way this phone was meant to flourish, in order to be used the way this is meant to be used, is you need a network. Because power without a network just means you have a really expensive camera and note-taking device. But what you need is a network. What you need is Wi-Fi. Well, you need a cell service. It'll hit in the next hour. You'll get it. And so the the, the network allows us to actually use the phone the way it was intended to be used. And here's what I need you to know, child of God. In order for you to flourish, you need two things to be true about your life. What are those two things? You need power and you need to say it with me a network. You need power. You know when that power comes? That power comes the moment you call on the name of the Lord. It says the Holy Spirit of God takes up residence in you so that the God of the universe lives in the mystery of the Holy Spirit inside of your bones. The moment you call on the name of the Lord, you are filled with that power. You are alive in Christ, and you are alive with him forevermore. And yet, that is not enough. It is not sufficient. You need power, and you need a network Because if you have power without a network, you will never flourish in the way God has called you to. And the network has a name, and that network's name is your local church. It is the men and the women who make up that church. It is your friends. It is your family. It is your pastors. It is your small group leaders. It is the local church. And here's what I'm just going to plead with you to do. As you go home, don't you dare bail on your church. Don't you dare bail on what's going on. I've seen it too many times where you come to camp and life changes and everything's good and God is on the move and then you get home and there's some little bit of drama, some scheduling issue, some little thing, and you back away, you back away, you back away, you back away. So you have the power, but you lose the network. And when you lose the network, you lose the ability to flourish in the way that God has for you. Let me plead with you. Lean in. Go to youth group. Go to church. Be part of a small group. Serve on a team. Go on the mission trip. Sign up for summer camp. Whatever the next thing is, your youth pastor will tell you what the next thing is, but you lean in. You be a part of that for two reasons. Number one, you need your church. I know you don't think you do it. I know you think you got this on your own. Let me be clear, you don't got this on your own. You will not flourish into the man or woman God has called you to on your own. You need your church. But here's the second thing I need you to know. Your church... Needs you. Your church needs you. And I know you think they could do without me and I don't matter and I'm not important, and I'm just going to call that as total, that is bogus. It's not true. It's a lie you've believed. Your church needs you. I'll tell you the story of a young lady named Grace. Um, Grace comes to us, uh, and she, she, she rolls into church, or church with us, uh, and she starts coming in the fall uh, years and years and years ago. And throughout the fall, she's kind of curious about church, but not sure she believes in Jesus. Uh, and so she ends up coming to winter camp with us. Her friend invites her to winter camp, and she's sitting right back there uh, where you guys are sitting underneath that balcony there. And it's decision night. And I've shared with you a few people who have made key decisions on decision night. And decision night happens, and she stays behind. And I walked up to her as the pastor of the group. And I was so excited. I said, Grace, is tonight the night you've called on the name of the Lord, and you've trusted in him and received his forgiveness. And she looks at and she goes, Brian, no. I don't know that I believe this. I guess I, I want to. I'm open to it, but I just don't know that I buy into it. No, I'm not. And so we talked and we talked and we talked and she left camp and my first thought was, I'll never see her again. She's trying out Jesus, it's not for her, but then to my shock, the next week she showed up. And she kept showing up over and over and over again. And then it's May of that year, it's months after winter camp, and she comes to me and she says, hey, uh, Brian, uh, we're going to the beach trip um, the next week. Um, I've got a question for you. And I said, yeah, send anything. And I'm expecting to hear a question about Jesus or a theology or a Bible question. She goes, um, would you be up for baptizing me? I was like, excuse me? I was like, Grace, I only baptize people when they come to faith in Jesus. She goes, I know, and I have. I know, and I have. And there's two things that are remarkable about that story. The first thing I want to say to you is this, that if you've come up this weekend and you're not sure you believe in Jesus, you haven't responded to the gospel, I want you to know God's not done with you yet. Your story's not over yet. And some of you think, well, I've done with that, I'll move on. No, you can keep leaning in and God wants you. God sees you. But then the second thing that stunned me about this is this. Like I, as the pastor, didn't spend a lot of time talking with Grace over those five months. But you know who did? Her friends. The people she went to camp with. They kept in touch with her, they kept texting her, they kept inviting her to church, they kept saying, you can be a part of this thing. And over the course of five months, because her friends kept welcoming her in, kept telling her about Jesus, kept staying patient with her, kept staying loving with her, here's Grace, she comes to faith in Jesus, I baptize her this summer. Grace goes on mission trips, Grace joins ministry, Grace is going to be up here at Hume Lake this season, counseling other people and leading them to Jesus. Why? because a local church rallied around her and said, we're not finished with you. We have space for you, we love you, we care about you, and I'm here to plead with you, there are thousands of graces on your school campus. There are thousands of young men and women who need a home, who need a place, and that is why your church needs you. See, you can say, I don't need my church, which isn't true, but your church needs you to lean in, to build up, to encourage, and to love one another. Because the local church is the soil in which healthy Christians grow. So here's how we're gonna conclude our time together, and here's how we're gonna conclude our weekend. I think one of the most significant things you will do when you get home is to lean into your local church, to be a part of what God is doing in that local body. And here's what I know all across this room. Some of you are bought in. You don't need to hear this, you're just being encouraged in this, you're in on everything, you don't just show up, but you serve, you show up early, you stay late, you invite people, you're all in on your church, and praise God, continue that. But here's what I know is also true. There are some of you who are just kind of fickle on your church. You come to camp, and then you back away. You're kind of in, you're kind of out. Some drama happens, you back away. You get excited, you move in. You're in and out on your church. You've been fickle, and you know it. You know that your relationship with the church is just kind of in and out and not really solid. You say you love Jesus, but you're not connected to his network. And this morning, I want to give an invitation to you. See, last night I gave an invitation about the power that it takes for us to be alive in Christ, and many of you responded to that. This morning I want to give an invitation about that network and to ask some of you to commit yourself or perhaps recommit yourself to your local church, and we're going to do that publicly right now. If right now you're going, you know what, that's me, I've been fickle, I've been in, I've been out, I've been unfaithful, I love Jesus, and yet I've just not been faithful to the local church that God has called me to connect toward. I need them and they need me. I'm going to ask you in just a moment to stand to your feet. Not to shame you, not to embarrass you, but so you can make a public commitment that says, I'm in. I'm in with my church as we go forward. I'm going to go home, and it's not just me and Jesus, it's me and Jesus and the people God has called me to love together. So here's how we close the weekend with a simple invitation. Who here needs to commit themselves to being all in on their local church as they go forward? If that's you, I want you to stand to your feet on the count of three. One, two, three. All over this room, stand to your feet. Stand to your feet, that's awesome. Still got time, still got time. If you're just going, that's me, I know that's me, I don't wanna do it, it's embarrassing, but just stand to your feet and say, that's me, that's me. Amazing. Stay standing. Can we give it up for people who have just made a bold and vulnerable choice? Awesome. To those of you standing, I want you to know you've made a courageous choice and a good choice. To stand in the midst of people here, maybe it feels embarrassing, maybe it actually feels vulnerable, but I want you to know that vulnerable and embarrassing moments are actually the ways you move forward in faith. I'm proud of you, I'm excited for you, and I know that you will never regret leaning in on what God is doing through your local church because the local church is the soil in which healthy Christians grow. You can have a seat. To everyone else here, may you walk by the Spirit that you might not gratify the desires of the flesh. The very first night I walked in here, I told you something. I told you that no one is here by accident, I told you that you are here on purpose and for a purpose. That God had something to say to you this weekend. And the only question, the only question that mattered this weekend is whether or not you will have the ears to hear it. I hope you hear it. And when you hear it, I hope you heard it this weekend. And when you've heard it, I hope you do not harden your heart. But rather, I hope you take steps of obedience moving forward to become like Jesus. I know you'll be glad you did. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thanks for tonight, and thanks for your word, this morning, and thanks for your word, thanks for your church. I pray those who stood, and maybe even those who stood should have stood, uh, would lean in and be a part of their local church going forward. I pray that we would know and love your word, that we would walk in obedience, that we would be transformed into the image and the likeness of Jesus. God, I pray for each of these young men and women as they go down the hill. I pray that they would stand against the distraction, the temptation, the opposition that's coming their way. I pray that they would become more and more like Jesus, courageous and bold and faithful in a world that seems to have gone off its rails. God, help us to be a generation that shows what it means to be faithful to the living God, the resurrected Jesus. It's in his name we pray. And one last time, everyone said real loud.